first gift, the first present that Kelly ever gave to me for the first birthday that I had when we were dating together was a frame with some painting that she had done in it and overlaying the words, overlaying that painting or the words, be thou my vision, the first verse of that hymn. Where there is no vision, the people what? Perish. Everything begins with being able to look forward into something, to be able to see something. And so our prayer as we gather around God's word week in and week out is that God will renew our vision, that he will give us a new perspective on ourselves, on him, on the world around us. I got a new perspective from this elder who was standing in my office and his fists were clenched. I was 27 years old, I was a brand new senior pastor in a New York City metropolitan church. You could see the little vein on his forehead that was throbbing. He was as mad as a wet hornet. It was the day of a congregational meeting. The congregation had, in my coming, uh, had just voted on a home for the senior pastor. They had sold, uh, about 10 years earlier, the manse for the church where the senior pastor's family would live. They hadn't parked the money in a disciplined way, and part of the scramble of me coming to the church is they woke up and said, oh no, we need to figure out how to provide for housing. Try to get 1,200 people to decide how big, how nice, and in what location the senior pastor out of the church ought to live. That's the most complicated leadership dynamic I've ever been a part of. And this guy was in my office and he was mad because he didn't like the decision that the elders collectively and that the church had made and he was letting me have it. I was a pretty good pastor up to a point. I was listening, I was providing space for grace and in the midst of his tirade, he looked at me and he said, you know, if you were called to this job, you'd do it for free. And so, for the first time, I spoke in that little meeting, and I looked at him and I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll do my job for free when you do yours. To which he huffed, turned around, walked out the door of my office, and never, to my knowledge, ever walked through the doors of the church again. We will miss you, as they say in Southwest Airlines. (laughs) The reason that I pushed back in that moment was I was fine letting him have his opinion. I was fine letting him have his emotions. But there came a moment where he crossed a line in the conversation to me when he questioned my motives. Have you ever had anybody question your motives? Does it feel good when somebody questions your motives? Do you like it when somebody pries open your brain and tries to peer into your psyche and into your soul to tell you not only what you ought to do, but to be able to try to probe around as to why you are doing it? I gotta tell you this morning, we're gonna look at some stories at a portion of the Bible where it's gonna be a confrontational conversation. It's not gonna feel good because Matthew is telling us a series of stories that question our motives. And it's gonna make us uncomfortable. One of the stories that Jesus tells right before the story that we're gonna look at is a story about our relationships with our possessions. Do we possess them or do they possess us? 
After this story, Jesus will tell another famous story, and this is the one where the mother brings her sons and says, you know, please put one on the right and one at the left. That's a story not about possessions, but about prestige. How do we feel about the power and the position that we have been given or are seeking in our life? What's your motives with that? And in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a story in between those two stories that questions another dimensions of our motives. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, starting in the first verse. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, which was a generous daily wage, For a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idly by in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went, and going out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, he did the same. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found some others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. In other words, this is not a story about laziness. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired at the 11th hour came, each of them received what? A denarius. And now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day, the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the first will be last, and the last will be first. I got to be honest with you, this story for a long time never really set well with me. You want to know why? Because I'm not a communist. <laughs> I mean, imagine, imagine you're, you're you, you work for a company, and you've been working for that company for a long, long time, and then, you know, right around Thanksgiving, your company hires somebody, you get to the end of the year, there's, uh, it's been a really good year, so there's going to be some generous bonuses given, and the person who's only been working for a couple of weeks, and they're holiday weeks, right, like only been working for a little bit of the time, gets the same bonus as you do, how is this going to sit with you? It's not going to sit well with me. And so this story, if it were about economics, if this was the point of what Jesus was making, maybe we should be upset by this story. But that, we should be upset, but that's not the reason why. There's actually a, 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 an ancient set of writings that's known as the Talmud. Let me show you a picture of how extensive the Talmud is. The Talmud is an ancient collection of rabbinical writings, and they have been 
collected through the generations. We don't know how old the stories really are. We know when they were, you know, for the most part written down, but the stories may have circulated around for a long time. And there is almost an identical story to the one that Jesus tells in the book of Matthew in the Talmud. But in that story that the Talmud has, and again, we don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg, which comes first. In the Talmud, one of the things that happens at the end of the story is the rabbi says, well, you know, this worker that we hired late did more in an hour than you did all day. Now, that's an American story. (laughs) I can get on board with that story. And so if the point isn't socialism, communism, and economic theory, or how a Christian should run her or his business, what is the point that Jesus is trying to make? Jesus tells this story in response to something very specific. Peter comes forward. And in chapter 19, verse 27, Peter says this. He says, see, we've left everything, and we followed you. What then will we get? And so Peter is coming forward, and he's talking about all the sacrifices and the work and the effort of what it means to be a disciple and how they were early adopters. If we want to put a modern translation on what Peter does in approaching Jesus in that moment, it is this acronym here. What's in it for me? To which Jesus has to pry Peter's brain open and question his motive. So if the first story in kind of the triad of these stories is about our relationship with possessions, and if the other one is about kind of our prestige or position or power. This one is about our pride. Now, let's be very clear on the distinction. Uh, It is okay for you and I to be self-aware. What we need to watch out for is that there is a fine line between loving yourself and the sense of taking care of yourself and being self-absorbed. I remember when I was in college, I was standing outside the the dining hall, and I don't know, I was whining and complaining about something, and I had this friend who was a younger brother in my fraternity, and while I'm, you know, kind of complaining about something, he just starts ambling in a circle around me. He's listening to me, and I think he has ADHD, and so he's just having trouble following the story, and I'm like, you're totally driving me crazy by walking around in a circle like this. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, I got caught in your orbit for a little while there. (laughs) I had gotten self-absorbed. And I was profoundly unself-aware. So how can I peer into your soul, your psyche, and determine whether or not you and I have become self-absorbed. This is what is tested and revealed in this story with our pride. And the first indication, the first clue in this story is that if you have become self-absorbed in the challenge of this text, is that if you are living a life of constant comparing with others. Let's look at verse 10 to begin with. In verse 10 it says this, 
Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Why would they think that they were receiving more? Because they weren't focused on the work or the satisfaction of their work or the fact that they had gotten hired. They were kicking back and they were very carefully paying attention to how much these other people were getting paid. The great social scientist Brene Brown uh, talks about how one of the most life-giving activities that she does to replenish is to swim. Not only does she get exercise, but she says that there's something just about being in the pool that just allows her mind to kind of reset. She says there's only one exception to a swim getting ruined. And that is if she's in the pool and she's swimming and she starts noticing and paying attention and benchmarking what she's doing based on what other people are doing in the lanes next to her. Because she's inherently competitive, she will try to keep up or to beat somebody to the wall or she will notice their stroke and see if their stroke is better than her stroke. And before you know it, she says what was supposed to be a life-giving, replenishing activity has turned into something that uh, really has sucked the life and the joy out of her day. She says in doing her research, why is comparison so dangerous? It is because we are trying to do two things at the same time. We're trying to simultaneously fit in and stand out at the same time. So no wonder comparison is so exhausting. If you live your life constantly looking at the lanes of what other people are doing instead of staying in your lane, you will find higher degrees, she says, of fear and anxiety and anger that like every benchmark of kind of emotional health finds a root tethered into somebody who is living their life of comparison. And let's be real, has social media made it easier to compare our lives to one another? And so it is part of the emotional reason why emotional health is under such duress today. We could have just listened to the great wit and wisdom of Mark Twain who put it like this, comparison is the death of joy because it robs us of our contentment. And so the first way that you can know that you've become a little too self-absorbed is how much are you comparing? The second indicator of your self-absorption is that of your grumbling level, your complaint indicator. Let's look at verse 11. It puts it like this. And on receiving it, meaning the money that they had received, they grumbled at the master of the house. When the Israelites were liberated from bondage in the Red Sea salvation, do you know how long it took them to start grumbling against God, miraculously saved against the greatest army in the world? Three days, according to the Bible. Three days in the wilderness was all it took for them to start complaining and grumbling against God. It just doesn't take very long. Now, there is great room for lament in the Bible. Not all complaint is bad. But there comes a point where our complaints turn inward and they grow like a cancer within us. 
And C.S. Lewis describes this in one of my favorites of his book, The Great Divorce, about how a grumble or a complaint can take over. He puts it like this. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. There can come a point where there is nothing left between you and your self-absorbed complaints and grumbles. And so comparing, grumbling, and then there's controlling. This is the third indicator in this story of a what's in it for me self-absorbed attitude. Let's look at the text to see where we see this. This is God responding in the role of the master by saying, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? This reminds me of the passages in Job where Job begins to rail against God and God says to him, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Stop me at any time if you were there and helped me create the universe. It's God putting Job in his place because Job was basically telling God how to do his job. I don't know if you were as bothered as I was this week, although this isn't a grumble. (laughs) The debt ceiling thing just really bothers me. Why is our federal government playing brinkmanship with the well-being and the economic security of our society? I don't understand that when someone chooses to become a public official, that it's not about can I get reelected or retain power, but it is about how can I serve the people who have asked me to do a job. And it's our language that even gives us away for moments like this. We talk about control of the House. We talk about control of the Senate. We talk about control of the White House. Is that the goal? Like really, is the goal for us to be able to win in the sense of that we have control over a branch of the government? I thought the job was for us to serve a free and generous people in this country. And yet, where do our politicians get it from? They get it from us, right? We can't just blame them. There is something systemic with us being so self-absorbed in a what's-in-it-for-me kind of political reality that we are trying to assert control over everything and dominate it. 
And this is a disease that is spread into families, into workplaces. This is not only federal politics, but local politics. It is all about control. How different is it that before this story and after this story, Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first? What Andy Stanley calls the race to the back of the line. How different is that mindset, that methodology, than trying to control everything? In this instance, think of how ridiculous it is to try to control God, to tell God how to do his job. There's a great writer by the name of Sky Jatani, and he tells the true story of a time when he got to go to this place. This is Cooperstown, New York. This is the Baseball Hall of Fame. The strange thing about him being there is that Sky is not a baseball fan. I mean, he's not like opposed to baseball. He just really doesn't know anything about it or really go to baseball games. And yet here he is at this VIP kind of um, Hall of Fame weekend, where he is literally sitting down next to Cal Ripken, who I can't remember the number, played like 2,600 consecutive games in a row. He's getting to consort with Tommy Lasorda, who he said was sitting in the corner like the godfather having people kiss his ring. <laughs> Wade Boggs, other great people who, who, who were there. And the and you might ask yourself, like, why is Sky there? If he's not a baseball fan, and clearly he's not a baseball player, why was he invited? Well, it turns out he was invited because there was a new inductee that year from an early star in baseball from the 1870s. And that star in baseball was the great, great, grandfather of Skye's wife. And so the only reason that he's in Cooperstown in terms of getting to be a part of this VIP reception, the only reason he's there at all is because he's married to somebody who multiple generations was a great baseball player. And Skye talks about you know, it's really hard to feel entitled or proud about something when your wife's great-great-grandfather did something really special. In other words, the reason that the servants who were hired first were not able to thrive in the vineyards of their master was because they were entitled and they had forgotten that they had received the same gracious invitation that all the workers had. My favorite part of the story, I don't know if you noticed it, is that when the workers who were hired first get angry in response to how much they got paid, even though they agreed to the amount, even though it's generous by any benchmark of the day, when they confront the master, they don't use any title. They don't say Lord, Master, no, no formality or respect. They just lay into him. 
And yet when the master responds, did you notice in the text what he calls them? One word, friend. Now don't miss this word in Hebrew. You go all the way back to the beginning with Abraham, the most remarkable thing that they said about Abraham was that he was a friend of God. Even in our comparisons, even in our grumbling, even in the midst of our trying to wrestle away control, God still calls you his friend. And so that's the grace that's available to us. That's what this story is about because we cannot earn our place with God on the base of anything that we've done. It is because of his unbelievable generosity. I love the old RSV's translation of a verse in this passage that says, are you envious because I am generous, God says. And so we need to have a motive check. We need to allow this scripture to peer in our brain. Are you really upset and envious because of the way that God has been generous to others. So let us pray. Our loving God and Father, we're incredibly grateful. We're grateful for the fact that you have invited us, that you have treated us with righteousness and with generosity, not just for us, but for others. Lord, help us to watch out for the trap of possessions and prestige, and most of all in this moment, with the trap of pride. Help us to be bothered by this story. Help us to understand that it's not about what's in it for me, and to take away our self-absorption of comparing and grumbling and controlling, and give us that antidote of your grace. To know that the only reason that we get to be near the hall of fame of Moses and Abraham and Sarah and all of the great saints of the people who have gone before us like Esther and David and Jeremiah and so many more is just because we've been invited and that we've been able to call you our friend because you have first befriended us. And so we thank you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.